So once again, I thank you for being here this evening, for taking the time uh, to continue this Lenten journey with us. Tonight's reflection is entitled, The Holiness of Our Humanity. And rather, but I'm going to offer an opening framework, because rather than reflect on yesterday's gospel, which would have been the woman caught in adultery or perhaps the raising of Lazarus, I want to spend our final evening together thinking about the events and people of Holy Week. In other words, rather than looking back, I want us now to turn forward. It's actually very helpful that Father James is already a little bit ahead of the ball game when it comes to the Holy Week decoration, because that's exactly what we're doing here tonight. I want us to look ahead to, as we heard Isaiah say in our first week together, see this new thing that God is doing this new thing that God is doing. Over the past few weeks, we have considered our posture, the temptations and mentalities that cause us difficulties. We've considered the questions and actions that are to be at the center of our spiritual and social lives. And we have considered that even knowing all that we know, we get tripped up in our own preconceived notions about how God will act. And so now we need to look ahead and recognize that for those closest to Jesus, which includes all of us, nothing is the same after the resurrection. We pause and we listen very carefully to the depths of our own heart so that we may discover what needs to die in us this year so that Christ may live anew. What is it? that we bring into Holy Week, that we allow to journey with Jesus along the passion that ultimately needs to be let go of so that we may experience life anew this year in the resurrection. In one of her letters, Edith Stein wrote that on the question of relating to our fellow men and women, our neighbor's needs transcend every commandment. Everything else that we do is a means to an end, but love is an end already, since God is love. Love, and I would argue only love, makes kenosis possible. That's a word we don't hear very often, but it is the self-emptying of one's dignity and self for the sake of another. It is what we refer to as Christ's work in the week ahead. Only a love that is lived, not just understood. Only a love that is felt, not just imagined. This is the love that leads us out of ourselves to live with presence without the consequences of our performance. Now that's a mouthful, so I want to say it again. That we live with this kind of love, this canonic love, which allows us to live with presence without the consequence of performance. Cynthia Bergol writes that God is that which makes love possible and that the purpose of love is always inner transformation. God makes love possible 
and the purpose of love is always inner transformation. To love and to receive love is to allow ourselves to be seen for who we are, to reveal and have revealed that which has been there all along, but up until this moment previously unknown. Love is a calling forth of that which was already there. It's a courageous act because it demands an admission of our own potential and the responsibility to live up to it. It is love, this kind of love that I'm framing our evening with tonight, that has helped me understand that priesthood, at least for me, is not simply about the sacrifice that I make, it is ultimately about the sacrifice that I must become. I think the same has to be said for each one of us in our own way through the priestly responsibility we share by virtue of our own baptism. And so I've said this before, but I want to repeat it again, that we all share a royal priesthood. You are baptized and anointed priest, prophet, and king. And any time you make sacrifice for one another, for your community, for your family and friends, for your work, you are living out and fulfilling your priestly dignity as a Christian. It's only through this kind of sacrifice that I believe we can reclaim the moral authority that we have lost. That's what sacrifice means, after all, to make holy. We are made holy by the sacrifices we make. We are made holy when we let go of what we have and know so that others may have and know. So the question that I asked you to think about for your homework was what is it that you need to sacrifice this year? What is it that you need to let go of so that you may fully embrace your holiness? And so with that, I turn it open to a little bit of a Q&A. I'm interested to hear what your conversations were like this past week, what you might be thinking about um, after our time together last Monday night. My hope is that one of the things that we start to understand that we need to let go of is our distrust of one another and our skepticism of the world that we live in. Because that is something that has gained a lot of momentum in recent years. Fundamentally, I hope that you are ready to heal the division that you have created between your humanity and your divinity. That your humanity is no longer understood as working against your holiness, but rather your embrace of an authentic humanity leads you to holiness. And the question for me now, the question for our time together this evening, is to think about what kind of church are we called to be that expresses and encourages each other to live that authentic humanity. Years ago, I read a book entitled Community, The Structure of Belonging by Peter Block. I highly recommend it for parish communities or for any other kind of organization. 
Peter Block writes that our communities begin to transform themselves when they sacrifice their love for leaders. Because it is often our love for leaders that limits our capacity to create alternative futures. It's what breeds dependency and entitlement. Now he nuances this to, to get at that we, we need to start to shift the context under which we gather and change the methodology of our gatherings. Because otherwise we keep waiting for great leaders that never step up to the power and accountability that is within our own grasps. And so in the world of church, it means that we continue to wait for the right priest or the right pastor to do the work that you were always meant to do in the first place. What this gets at is precisely what Jesus is getting at, a shared ministry based on the dignity of one's baptism and vocation. A shared ministry, all of us, based on the dignity of our baptism and vocation. The reality is, I'm not meant to do what you're doing, nor vice versa. We are in this together. And the dominant belief is that more and better leadership, better programming, better funding and expertise and studies and trainings and master plans, that's how we build a better community. And while it is a path to improvement, Block recognizes quite rightly, it is not a path to transformation. It is not a path to the transformation that we are called to experience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What Jesus preached and what the church teaches through the principles of solidarity and subsidiarity is that you have the capacity to change the community story and the power to name what is worth talking about and to bring a new context into being. And this is what Bloch calls restorative community. I have to tell you that restoration has been a pretty significant part of my priesthood. For seven years, I was working at two large buildings. They were buildings both over 180 years old, on, situated on university campuses, and they required extensive renovations. And so as a result, restoration work has, much to my own surprise, become a great theme in my life. In a different kind of way, it's much similar, it's very similar to the kind of work I'm currently doing at the University of St. Thomas. Careful attention has to be given to what must be kept, removed, and or transformed. It requires that you have a plan but that you also allow the structure to tell you what it needs. Otherwise, you spend way more time and way more money and way more heartache than necessary. And so restorative dialogue, I think, is a particular kind of dialogue because it demands that we pay attention to history. Inherent to this is a reverence, a gentleness, and stillness. Decisions are not so much made as they are discovered. 
because restoration brings people together to encounter a shared story, one that we all hold in common. It offers a new starting place rooted in our original goodness, usually before the mistakes were made. And so Bloch recognizes that restoration is associated for this reason with a quality of aliveness and wholeness. And a restorative community is created when we allow ourselves to use the language of healing and relatedness and belonging without embarrassment. That the essence of a restorative community is not economic prosperity or political discourse or the capacity for leadership. It is the citizens' willingness to own up to their own contribution, to be humble, to choose accountability, and to have faith in their own capacity to make authentic promises to create an alternative future. In other words, it's the context in which each citizen chooses to be held accountable rather than be entitled. Accountable rather than be entitled. And thus, restoration is fundamentally about healing our woundedness and community terms about healing our fragmentation and incivility. So I want you to pause for a moment and think about and perhaps discuss with your neighbor if you want to take two or three minutes. What does it mean for you? What does it mean for this parish, this church community to be that kind of a community? What concretely might you need to do differently? What might you need to own up to in order to bring about healing for the division that we face in our day? So I want you to take two or three minutes. Is that clear? Maybe a framework that helps you is what needs to be kept, what needs to be discarded, what needs to be transformed. How about that? Great segue to my next point. Thank you. So remember how I talked about in our first night that the hunger that people are longing for is this connection between spirituality and social justice? To be the church means that we are not just the church inside these walls, but we are, in the, we are the church outside these walls, which is so much of what we've been talking about in our time together. I've, over the past year of my life, I've really been in circles outside my comfort zone, participating in kind of economic and development conversations around the city of Houston. And most of the time I find myself asking why. To a lot of people, I just kind of like, why? tell me why this is so important. Why are we doing this right now? And what I'm trying to understand is the motivations behind the decisions that are being made. And it's been very interesting to me to go into these very non-church circles with a collar on, especially in light of the crisis, because my first fear was that I was, this was not going to turn out well. 
But much to my surprise, I have found that people have really wanted the inclusion of our religious communities. They've wanted our perspective. I think we have disqualified ourselves too often not being able to make the connections between what we talk about here and how we live our lives out there. Because the reality is most of our decisions are based in economics. That's the honest truth of it. And when we talk about how we care for one another, think about all of the, the issues that come up in elections. So many times our decisions have a great amount to do with these economic ideas or these transactional mentalities, right? If we give them this, then this is what they should give us. If this is, if this is that, then this is what they do in response. These are economic mentalities. In his follow-up book to Community, entitled The Abundant Community, Peter Block traces the history of corporations in the United States through a lens of sociology. And what he explains is kind of a corporate world history. Early on, he talks about how that they were very concerned with social unrest that would be, that would be exaggerated by too much leisure time. Right, so if you, if you think about it, if you're trying to get an economy moving, you know, leisure time where people are doing nothing, this isn't gonna help the economic momentum be built. He quotes the director of research at GM in 1929, who gave a presentation entitled, Keep the Consumer Dissatisfied. It wasn't meant to be a statement on the product, but rather creating the need for economic demand. And Bloch writes that this, this is really the mentality that represents a defining shift in American industry from fulfilling our needs to creating new ones. The movement from fulfilling our needs to creating new ones. And there are two costs that he outlines that I think are very helpful for us to think about. One cost of consumption is that our family has lost its function. It's no longer the primary unit that raises the child, sustains our health, cares for the vulnerable, or ensures economic security. Because the essential promise of a consumer society is that satisfaction can be purchased. I want you to just think about all the things that we purchase regarding how we raise our children, how we sustain our health, how we care for the vulnerable. There is a distinction that we need to make in this country between medical care, for example, and health care. Health is our quality of aliveness. And there's a, great, there's a great amount of things that we can do to be able to help the health of each other in our communities and families. The second cost is that we are isolated from our neighbors and our communities. In a consumer society, these functions are provided by a marketplace. They are designed to be purchased. So the loss of neighboring is not that I can simply have somebody else clean my house or counsel my son or bring food to my housebound parents when I'm on the road, Block writes. 
It is that I have organized a life of consumer purchasing as a substitute for my own capacity to grieve, relate, welcome, share wealth and resources with others. So I want to kind of pause on those two thoughts. Because again, this is how we take the idea of church outside of this place into our neighborhoods and communities. We have to ask some serious questions about how we participate in a consumer marketplace. Because, oh, by the way, we bring those mentalities into our churches too. But the other, the other consequence that I think is true is this ability for us to live in denial about who we are fundamentally called to be. And if I may be so bold, I think that denial is one of the defining mentalities of our day. Name the issue. Debt, the environment, power, any one of the things we've talked about over the last few weeks, we are in denial. And our consumerism of things, drugs and pharmaceuticals, products, alcohol, is how we deal with it. So this is where we now go back to our authentic humanity and the Holy Week that we are about to celebrate. For some time now, I've been working with other women around the world to try and respond to Pope Francis's call for a profound theology of women. It's been a life-changing way of seeing the world and the church for me. And one of the challenges that I've often heard from these women, which I find humorous and so scarily accurate, is how difficult it is to think of our relationship about God and, with, and each other without using a metaphor that doesn't have something to do with sports. And if you're a person that also feels that, then I would recommend a book, Jesus Feminist by Sarah Bessie. It's a fantastic work, and it's not quite what it seems. She relates in her book, for example, our Christian life to giving birth. And this is what she writes. This creating, this, this creating out of passion and love, the carrying of an ever-increasing beloved burden, the seemingly never-ending waiting, the knitting together of wonder in secret places, the under-the-surface fear, the pain, the labor, the blurring of that line between joy and someone, please make it stop, the I can't do it even while locked in the midst of doing, the delivery of new life and blood and hope and humanity, this is the stuff of God. There is something godly in the waiting, in the mystery, and the very fact that we are part of it, a partner with it, but not the authors of it. You know, there's a new life coming, and the anticipation is sometimes exciting, and other times exhausting and never-ending. There is a price to pay for the privilege of life. I can assure you, there is nothing dignified about giving birth. And yet that was the moment when I felt my carefully constructed line between the sacred and secular shatter once and for all. 
and the work that I have done, I have come to find that tears are sacramental. They are incarnational manifestations of a suffering soul that is being purified. And in all of our documents on liturgy, I've wondered if we ever consider what we lose when we overly focus on beauty and perfection as a way to convey the holy. Rather, I think I agree with Sarah that holiness at its most holy is messy and dirty and confusing because it is the process of transformation. Yesterday, most of us heard the gospel concerning the woman caught in adultery. However, those who received the scrutinies heard the gospel concerning the raising of Lazarus. I've always struggled a bit with this gospel, and I finally realized why. Because I kept reading the gospel as if Jesus was the Son of God, not also the Son of Man. I was reading it as if Jesus was following a script which was revealed to him, and to an extent that is probably true, but it's certainly not the whole story. Jesus wept. That line, which has caused so many people to pause, told me something this past morning. Something happened that I don't think Jesus expected. And so, I started wondering at what point Jesus wanted Lazarus to be raised from the dead. Because there are two ways that I can read this gospel. The first is inspired by the divinity of Jesus, that Lazarus was part of a plan to illustrate what would eventually happen, and that the lesson is for his friends and for us so that we may understand the resurrection. This is the usual way I think most of us read it. But then I read it another way. I read it thinking about Jesus' humanity, thinking about how much he loved Mary and his friends. Is it possible that Jesus grieved, not just because of the pain of the moment, but because he was beginning to know the suffering that he would both undergo and cause his friends? Because at this point in the story, Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. This is the last miracle in John's Gospel before Jesus undergoes the Passion. And so I wonder if the lesson isn't simply just to be about the resurrection, but about the whole Passion. That what we read on the fifth Sunday in Lent, Jesus' prayer at the tomb of Lazarus, is the first run at the prayer that he would pray again in the garden the beautiful prayer for his friends and all of us in chapter 17, when he prayed for his friends because he did not want them to suffer because of what he knew he had to do. You see, this is our God, so intimately involved with us, an incarnation of divine relationship lived with, with and through human relationships. And I wonder if John's Gospel is offering us a model, a way of being in relationship that is so rarely understood, a way of loving rather than being in love, a way of living outside of our head and outside of so much control, a way of loving that transcends what we thought was possible. 
a way of loving that allows us to love so completely that it brings us new life? Is it possible that in the stories we will hear this next week, Jesus didn't have it all together? That he was not stoically following some divine plan, but was struggling to do the will of God just as we do? He was human after all. Is it possible that when Mary came to him in her own suffering, that Jesus was overwhelmed by his humanity, and rather than run from it, which is certainly a temptation, Jesus allowed it to give him strength to pray the prayer that he didn't know he could pray? Is it possible that Jesus' friends helped him to see what he was capable of? Is it possible that when we read this gospel, we find that it wasn't Jesus teaching them, but that they were teaching Jesus. Perhaps this is why Holy Week begins with a recollection of Mary's anointing of Jesus with oils. Is it possible that she offered Jesus the strength to do what he had to do? Do we not need the same support from our own friends? Do we not have the same capacity to help one another do the will of God? Is this not why Jesus offers us an example of washing one another's feet as we begin the Triduum, a model to follow not of simple service, but of mutual love, a love where giving is receiving, not as two separate acts, but one? These were, after all, Jesus' closest friends, the ones he ate with, laughed with, traveled with, and slept with? Is it possible that the lived experience of their friendship allowed Jesus to love more deeply? That the service of feet washing is not simply a divine instruction, but a human gratitude that allows love to expand into surrender? In all of this, I think what we are meant to understand is that love is what Jesus lived into, and our life, our human life, is what Jesus lived into love. So you see, I think we lose one of the essential lessons of the Triduum if we do not allow it to begin with Jesus' humanity that if we put Jesus up on a pedestal and see him as completely in control, as an agent of God following a divine script, then the example of love is lost. And so too is our own call to love, just as Jesus did. On the cross, love conquers death because it in itself is death, the death of total surrender. I have begun to understand that love always hurts when it decides to create rather than consume. That love always hurts when it decides to create rather than consume. Because love always hurts because of the sacrifice it requires. Love acknowledges that not all is possible that choices and time and circumstance 
and capacity limit in this life what we long for in eternity and receives right now with open hands. The sacrifice that we have been talking about is to taste what God promises without trying to consume the whole when it hasn't been given yet. However, as we all know, love is a tricky word, and it evolves with time, just as we evolve. I opened with a statement that I want to repeat, because it's kind of my current thought about what love really means for us, practically speaking. To allow ourselves to be seen for who we are, and to reveal and have revealed that which has always been there, but previously unknown. That love is this calling out of us, our original goodness. It's this courageous act to love and to receive love because it demands an admission of our own potential and entails a responsibility to live up to it. In this way, love requires a vulnerability and a trust. Otherwise, our conflicts turn into politics. But how often do we spend our time trying to conceal our vulnerabilities rather than living through them with a new sense of awareness? My friends, this is what we've been talking about. These fears and these vulnerabilities, these expectations that we so often try to brush away, especially under our American ethos, especially under the guise of trying to have it all together, the temptation that we have admitted over these past few weeks to live individually more than communally, to desire to know more than to believe. If we cannot love beyond these vulnerabilities, then our trust will never win the day. Then our conflicts will remain political. If we are to overcome the political toxicity of our day, we will only do so if we can trust in the goodness of, once, of one another. That, I think, is restoration work. Trust is fundamentally the issue. And I fear that to not trust our I fear that we don't trust our institutions any more than we trust each other. That what we learn from our religious practice is supposed to be how to let go. That the religious journey is a journey from others who want you to be, and who you want to be, and who you are called to be for others. The religious journey is a journey of acceptance that the church is not a collection of rules or ideas or of individuals, but the church is meant to be a transcendent embodiment of love. A transcendent embodiment of love. And to this end, I want to leave you with the imperative words of Father Ronald Rollheiser on this very subject. He says it better than I've ever found an ability to say myself. What we are searching for is not a new technique, but a new sanctity. Not a cooler dress or language, 
but a more inclusive embrace and vocabulary for the faith that is a mother's tongue. Not some updating of the gospel to make it more acceptable in today's world, but a more courageous radiating of its wide compassion, not in some new secret, some book or film that catches people's curiosity, but a new way of being more adult in our discipleship so that the world and our own children, irrespective of their temperament or ideology, will find themselves more understood and embraced by what we hold deepest. May we be that kind of church for our community. May this be our work to heal the division of our day. My friends, I thank you very much for taking the time over these past few weeks to journey with each other and with me as we grow in holiness. Please know that my prayer for you will be that you continue this journey that you have begun, that you will indeed find a newness in the resurrection, that you will have the courage to be able to let go of the things that need to be sacrificed in your own life so that others may live with the kind of hope that you have known. And I ask simply that you continue to keep me in your prayers and all the work that I am about. I thank you very much for everything. May God bless us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right. Well, and I, I will. Um, I appreciate your perspective. I, what I would say to you is what a nun used to tell to me, when I was working with HIV and AIDS, uh, folks who were struggling with HIV and AIDS. She said, "You know, you should never shit on people." And and it sounds like shit, but it should, right? We should never shit on people. And I've remembered that to the very day. I, I think the question. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. And I think my question fundamentally through this entire mission is, how do we encourage and offer a hand more than a finger? And that I think is the great challenge. And, and that requires creative solutions. Um, our language matters. Rabbi Abraham Heschel, father of Judaism uh, in, in the United States, you know, has this great line that says, words create worlds. We recognize that here most of all. And so, you know, catching our language and when we say things like, well, our kids don't know anything, I know what you mean, but the way, the, but that, is there something else behind that? And what I've been trying to get at this entire time is to really look at our own selves and to ask ourselves the deeper questions of where, what's the motivation for the, for the views and beliefs that we hold? Is there something that needs to die? so that something new can be brought about. I think that fundamentally is a challenge. Do we have a long way to go? Do we wish that people would behave better than they do? Absolutely we do. Um, but I, I think that I'm, again, I'm, my hope is, is that first and foremost, we ask ourselves and say, what am I doing um, you know, to do a better job of this? Uh, you know, it's, it's um, more and more as a church. I mean, one of the things that I have experienced in my priesthood, largely because I wasn't in the United States, I've closed more churches and parishes than I'd like to think about. This May, I'll be ordained 10 years. I've, I've had to close five churches thus far. Um, I've, I went from a, being a pastor where there was four priests to where there's one. 
Um, you know, I mean, we are, this is, uh, this is gonna get real, real fast. Are we doing the jobs that we need to do to encourage our young men and women to consider way of life? Right? Are we, are we even having the conversations? I'll never forget my, my father, who again is here tonight, when he came to visit with my mom in Windsor, and we were with a group of students um, that were university students, and they were all involved in campus ministry. It was about 60 of them, and these were like the cream of the crop, living their faith all the time. And so they asked, you know, well, why did, you know, what did you think about your son being a priest? Or, or you know, we had that conversation, and as he often does, he turned the question back on them, and, and he said, well, I want to ask you, how many of you had your parents talk to you about a vocation in the church? Out of 60, you know how many said yes to that? Two. Two. The church has got issues, no doubt. But these become very different conversations if we all don't do a better job at encouraging rather than pointing fingers. Because that's what our, I'll, again, I'll tell you, as a, working at universities for a while now, many of them have this idea that the church does a whole lot of shooting and does a whole lot of pointing fingers. What can we do better? I'd like to think that we can. Thank you.